Cloverleaf University presents Leaf Talks, Sports, Meds, and Money, a virtual conference featuring some of the industry's top doctors, activists, and athletes. Episode 1, Cannabis Education in Sports and Medicine, featuring Dr. Uma Donna Balan and Dr. David Bierman, with your host, Cloverleaf University founder, Chloe Villano. My name is Chloe Villano with Cloverleaf University, the nation's first approved cannabis and hemp university by the Colorado Department of Higher Education's Private Occupational School Board. And today we're launching our Leaf Talks podcast series, Sports, Meds, and Money, with some of the best doctors, attorneys, and athletes in cannabis to talk about sports medicine, research, uh, cannabis in medicine, and cannabis in education. So for our first panel, we're going to discuss cannabis in medicine with the wonderful Dr. David Bierman, who is the founder of the American Cannabinoid, um, American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine, and Dr. Uma Donabalan uh, from Global Health and Hygiene Solutions and Uplifting Health and Wellness. Thank you guys for being here today. Thank you. Um, so Dr. Bierman is one of the most clinically knowledgeable physicians in the United States in the field of medical marijuana. He has over 40 years of working in substance and drug abuse treatment and prevention programs. Dr. Bierman was a pioneer in the free and community clinic movement, and his career includes public health, administrative medicine, provision of primary care, pain management, and cannabinology. And Dr. Uma Donabalan is a Harvard graduate a very respected and educated physician. She completed her Bachelor of Arts at Rutgers University and got her uh, medical degree from the University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark, New Jersey. She did her residency at the Medical University of South Carolina and she completed her Master's in Public Health and Residency in Occupational and Environmental Medicine. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you. So I know we have um, an incredible uh, session planned here, and we'll just jump right into it. Um, you know, talking about this billion-dollar industry and how fast it's moving with so many patients and so many people that have have uh, really taken to cannabis, not just for recreational purposes, but for medical. And I know many people think that all, all use is medical use. But, um, you know, I want to just jump into the medical conversation and kind of hear from you guys what um, I would like to hear about your individual practices and what you've been focusing on in cannabis. All right. So let's talk about my practice is my office is located about three miles from the University of California in Santa Barbara. And when we started, one of the things we wanted to do was to make sure that the people that uh, came in here were people who had a real need for the medical use of cannabis. So we pre-screened them by asking three questions. So what's your medical condition? Uh, what treatment have you received? And what was the last time you got treatment? And by that, we were able to screen out those people who uh, were sophomores at UCSB who said, uh, well, I can't eat and I can't sleep and I don't believe in doctors. And uh, so we did not make appointments for them because they weren't going to qualify uh, for a recommendation. I spent about an hour with uh, each patient. Uh, a lot of people, particularly early on, were very afraid of cannabis and they were afraid of getting uh, dysphoria. And so I gave them a little education about uh, the endocannabinoid system 
freedom and about cannabis. Uh, then, of course, I take a history. Uh, before that, I have gotten their medical records and reviewed them as well. Uh, and then I do a physical, and then I answer any questions that they have, and I discuss dose with them. Uh, and I have most of them come back uh, in about a week or so to find out how the dose that they started worked and whether or not they had any side effects. Of course, I tell them to call me if they have any side effects that are, are a problem. When I first started practicing uh, cannabinoid medicine, which was in 2000, and I wasn't a stranger to cannabis, uh, I helped start the third free clinic in the country. Uh, I volunteered at the Haight-Ashbury Clinic. I ran their drug treatment program. This goes on and on. Uh, but uh, I, while having familiarity uh, with cannabis, uh, I did not have intimate familiarity with the broad expanse of conditions that respond to cannabis. And I think that, to me, has been one of the most eye-opening things are uh, people uh, with cancer, uh, people uh, with phantom limb uh, syndrome, uh, people with Crohn's disease. And the list goes on and on. And I have just been amazed at what I have learned from my patients in terms of the conditions that it benefits them, the dosages that they take, uh, and, uh, you know, it's expanded my understanding of the endocannabinoid system and, and the human body. So we'll, we'll stop with that because I could, you know, go on and, and take up the whole hour here and I don't want to do that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Berman. Dr. Berman has been a mentor of mine. I am was not introduced to cannabinoid medicine until actually 2010. And so this marks 10 years for me of understanding that we have a system known as the endocannabinoid system. With all my fancy education, I had never, ever, ever learned that there was a system that existed. And if anything, um, I'm also a medical review officer. So I was on the end of testing patients. And if they tested positive for this chemical known as THC, many of them lost their jobs and their livelihoods because on a federal level where it is today, it is still illegal. It is still not considered as a option for most patients especially if they work in federal positions. And I also did Department of Transportation Physicals. So my array of background has also been in heavy metals. And in my clinic now, I see patients of all ages. Our youngest is four and our eldest is 98. And as Dr. Berman mentioned, the array of conditions for what cannabis can be used for is multiple. And I look at it for three aspects. I look at it as far as preventative health, how I can maintain one's health to improve their quality of life, and also for treatment. And ultimately, every one of us, as I say, has an expiration date. And we want people to have the best quality of life that they can have. And in my practice, uh, I am many patients' primary care physician. It is not only about getting their certification done, but I actually educate them, embrace them, and empower them. And that's been our tagline at Uplifting Health and Wellness. And I've been in Massachusetts uh, since 2014. And what I also incorporate, as much as what Dr. Berman has done, is some of the principles of the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine. We actually follow our patients. I see them. I make sure that we have understood where that patient is coming from because most of our patients 
can vary from no experience with cannabis, cannabis naive to what I consider a self-medicating. I don't use the word recreational because I do believe that it is all medicinal and uh, it's just how you use it. And also the people sort of in my age group that had it when they were younger and now are learning about it as a safe option through their children or other peers as well. So I love what I do and I'm proud to say I am a diplomat in the cannabinoid medicine specialist and certified by the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine. It's definitely an honor. Such an honor to have you both here today. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, what type of research are you seeing in this industry and um, why are we conducting these type of research studies? I mean, I know we've founded the endocannabinoid system and we've, we've had these, you know, Technion Institute and these, these universities start to really push research, which it is the first, second year, actually, we've been even allowed legally to really research this plant. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are seeing out there. Well, you know, there's in order to do research, most of the research has been really done to look at the negative aspects of cannabis, not to look at the beneficial aspects and to the war on drugs and the developing brain and some of the brainwashing that literally I have heard, you know, the your egg, you know, your brain on, on drugs and with the cracked egg and how we were taught that this was a abuse, a drug of abuse, not a drug of use as a medicine for treatment. And I've had to relearn so many aspects of this. And what I really understand is that three organizations are involved in order for research to be cleared. You need NIDA, you need the DEA and the FDA all have to approve us in order to be able to do research. And since cannabis is still federally illegal, it is still difficult. But many countries, primarily Israel and other countries, are far ahead of the game because their countries are embracing this and wanting to know the answers and wanting to know how many other things are out there that we still don't know about. I mean, cannabis is just the tip of the iceberg of what is out there that we could possibly understand and to help people's lives. So let me talk uh, a little bit about uh, the, uh, the research and what what we need to do in order to get this more accepted. For one thing, I think that Dr. Raphael Mishulam, the man who isolated and characterized the chemical structure for THC, should be given uh, the Nobel Prize for Medicine or the Nobel Prize for Science. And I think that would really um, get us uh, to have a complete sea change in the way people looked at this. I think the other thing that would be useful is if some prominent person uh, say former President Obama or even President Trump uh, came out and said that cannabis should be rescheduled. The reason, uh, as Dr. Uma pointed out, that we're so far behind other countries is that cannabis is a Schedule One drug, and you have to jump through a bunch of uh, hoops in order to uh, do this research. It's just uh, not possible to do this research uh, in an easy way because of all the, the bureaucratic barriers that have been put there. They were put there by uh, Richard Nixon, uh, the uh, last president who uh, operated in a uh, uh, chaotic situation. And both of his uh, 
people in his administration who were in NIMH and National Institute of Health, uh, Dr. Cohn, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, thought that can uh, cannabis should be treated, say, with a, like no more serious than a traffic ticket. And so Nixon didn't want to have the doctors involved, and that's why he created NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And again, as Dr. Uma said, uh, they are looking at uh, dangers. Uh, and we need to take a look at its use for uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder, for post-traumatic stress disorder, for attention deficit disorder, uh, for cancer. Those studies are going on elsewhere in the world. And you know anybody that's interested in promoting jobs, uh, and you have both uh, Biden and uh, Trump talk about that, uh, has to take a look at the use of cannabis as medicine because we're giving away uh, these, uh, these jobs in terms of creating medicines. Now, I'm not a big fan of the pharmaceutical industry. And so uh, I think the use of cannabis uh, sort of outside uh, the uh, bureaucracy is not a bad idea. Uh, and having it available as an over-the-counter preparation. After all, in 1988, after a two-year rescheduling hearing, the DEA's chief administrative law judge, Francis Young, recommended rescheduling cannabis to Schedule Two, which, by the way, is what the uh, House of Delegates at the AMA asked for in 2009. In his finding of fact, uh, Judge Young said that uh, he felt that cannabis was one of the safest therapeutic agents known to man. And uh, quite frankly, uh, had John McCain used cannabis for his glioblastoma, because there was a study that was done in England that showed that you lived another 220 days, I doubt whether or not Brett Kavanaugh would be on the Supreme Court, because uh, Senator McCain would have lived 220 days longer. So in talking about um, research, I do think that we need to focus uh, more on research that's going on in uh, Israel, uh, in England, in New Zealand, in Australia, and recognize that the, uh, the United States, as in so many things, is no longer the world leader. Right. right. Yesterday was the anniversary October 7, 2003, when the United States of America was issued the patent, patent number 663507, which clearly states cannabinoids as an antioxidant and neuroprotectant. So right now, cannabis is in Schedule 1 because it states that there's no medical use, no medical research, and a potential for abuse. Mm -hmm. And we know that the research has been done and the government has a patent so why would the government have a patent if the research wasn't done and many people do not know that it was prescribed by doctors in this country and it was in the pharmacopoeia from 1850 to 1942 and today we don't have that liberty dr berman and i can only make a recommendation for cannabis because it is still federally illegal. And um, nobody's ever died from this plant fatality. So this is still work to be done in, through education. Right, and it's so interesting because here we are passing medical marijuana laws 
all over the country where people can get a recommendation and they can go in and they can buy cannabis, but they, we can't really tell them how much they should take or what they could use. So I think the tipping point is coming where we're going to have to, or we're going to legalize marijuana. We're paying, you know, over millions and millions of dollars in taxes on it. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see that what research studies come out in the next decade and what we're able to use for cannabis as medicine. It's very exciting. Now, I, I'd like to jump in uh, and uh, build on a couple of things that Dr. Uma said. But one thing is, in terms of research, the state of California did open up uh, a research center at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, that, that was about 2000. And they were the first one. And they did 18 FDA-approved studies. And that, that was very hard for them to get that done. All of them were designed to show harms rather than benefits. So they did show some benefits. It's uh, as kind of a, a side product of, uh, of that research. Uh, there now are currently cannabis uh, uh, institutes at UCLA uh, and uh, UC Irvine. Uh, and so I think we're going to see more action there. Uh, one of the things that the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine is is pushed for is for teaching doctors uh, about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, we'd like to see them teach about cannabis as medicine, but let's start with teaching about the largest uh, uh, neurotransmitter system in the human uh, body. And, you know, I'm a big uh, uh, history buff, and if anybody that's interested in history can buy my book, uh, Drugs Are Not the Devil's Tools, and in there I talk about the fact that uh, in the 1920s, American doctors wrote 3 million prescriptions a year that contained cannabis, and in 1937, the American Medical Association testified aggressively against the Marijuana Tax Act. And Dr. Uma is a big supporter of the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine. And if I may, I'd like to read two things off of our, our brochure. Uh, the AMA, the AACM recognizes that many constituents of cannabis are useful in treating a variety of illnesses. The AACM bases its assessment on the thousands of scientific studies that have clearly demonstrated the medical utility of cannabis and cannabinoids and its 4,000-year history of medical use. And then our mission statement, and we talked about this uh, as we were preparing for this. The AACM was founded in 2006 to establish a professional organization to recognize the medical professionals, researchers, and clinicians who support ethical guidelines in the field of cannabinoid medicine and promote greater understanding of cannabis, cannabinoids, and the endocannabinoid system. Our mission is to facilitate medical dialogue regarding cannabinoid medicine by doing outreach and education, promoting high practice standards, and encouraging scientific research and providing practitioners certification to qualified members. And I think that's right on point in terms of the research that you're talking about, because when these people come in, uh, that Dr. Uma and I and others are seeing that have medical conditions that respond to cannabis, in many ways, in many cases, we don't know what the mechanism of action is. And the endocannabinoid system is really giving us a much clearer picture of how the brain works. And there must be uh, more research, not only on the clinical ap uh, applications of cannabis, but on the basic science that pertains to the endocannabinoid system. Absolutely. And what we've also heard is that 
the endocannabinoid system is pretty much involved in every type of disease out there. If the system is not at homeostasis, that's what this, in one word, if we had to explain to anybody out there, what is the function of this endocannabinoid system? It is about homeostasis, balance, bringing one to ease. And as I say, if you are not at ease, you are at dis-ease. And that's where everybody is different. And that is another thing that is very difficult for healthcare providers because we are very much taught in how to make a diagnosis and make that code for that diagnosis disease or the condition and to follow an algorithm for treatment. And as the word that we keep using here is dose. And the word that I like to use is titrate because it is about individualized medicine. And what I consider myself is that I'm a not only a primary care physician, but I provide care that's personalized for every patient because that's what cannabis is about. It's about understanding how cannabis works and how you make it work for you appropriately and safely. Right. Tell me a little bit about what conditions you guys have seen in your patients um, and you know what benefits have you seen in your patients from giving them cannabis? Okay, well, um, I will start off with a nine-year-old girl who had severe autism. Uh, she was unable to speak. Uh, the parents brought her in, and uh, I usually start children off with dronabinol or marinol because it's a prescription drug, and, uh, and then I say, look, if this doesn't work so well, you can try cannabis. At any rate, they did, and they came back in a week later and said that they had never seen such improvement with prescription medications and that there was a 30% improvement uh, in the child's behavior and that this was recognized by the special needs teacher and by her assistant. So that's sort of one of my stories. I have another patient who has Parkinson's disease who is a, pa a painter and he came in uh, two years in a row and each time gave me a painting and he said, Doc, I wouldn't be able to still be painting if it weren't for you. And I said, if it weren't for cannabis, you wouldn't be able to still keep on painting, but I love your work and I'll, 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 I'll take your uh, picture. I was really blown away by a woman who had uh, quadriplegia very severely, came in here with her caregiver and found that cannabis gave her uh, relief uh, for the pain that she had uh, as uh, part of her uh, very, very serious uh, uh, paralysis. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, pain conditions that people have uh, that benefit from cannabis. And that is the number one reason why doctors like Dr. Uma and myself uh, recommend cannabis. I think the other thing that uh, is really important uh, is the fact that we know that cannabis kills cancer cells. But I can't tell my patients that cannabis cures cancer. I can say if your mouse has cancer, it will cure your mouse's cancer uh, because we've done all kinds of 
of animal research uh, in this country. Now, uh, I did mention the glioblastoma study uh, that was done in the UK, uh, but they used about uh, one-sixth to one-half of what a panel of cannabis experts or ca cannabis and cancer experts said was the minimum dose that you should uh, use, 300 uh, to 800 milligrams a day for at least three months. And then most uh, cannabis experts would say uh, you should use a smaller amount uh, as a maintenance dose uh, over your uh, over your lifetime. So the, the, the span of, of medical conditions that we see uh, is enormous. I see a lot of people with attention deficit disorder because I've written on that, a lot of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Dr. Uma uh, has uh, as broad or, or broader uh, a spectrum of cases that, uh, that she's seen. Absolutely. It's very much like your stories, Dr. Berman, is that my patients also, um, I notice the word chronic pain. They've lived with pain for a long time, or they come in with lists of medications um, that go on and on and side effects from the medications that have been given to them. So what I really believe is that this is a much safer alternative. I consider it for harm reduction. If you can at least think about harm reduction when over-the-counter medications such as aspirin, ibuprofen and Tylenol are available and each of those medications can be overdosed to a point of fatality, why? can't we consider cannabis as a safe alternative is my question to people. Right, when we already know that it works. Um, so my next question is um, with COVID, I mean, we saw that COVID made cannabis an essential business, which really was a huge step for cannabis. I know a lot of people haven't won in COVID, but cannabis kind of did. Um, so what are you guys kind of seeing now that, um, you know, have you seen any correlation? I mean, I've heard there's a couple research studies. Have you have you seen any COVID patients? Um, what's been your personal experience during this time? Well, um, go, go ahead. ahead. No, Dr. Berman, go ahead. So uh, we, uh, when I say we, the executive director of AACM and the woman uh, who was the former, who's a consultant and was the uh, editor of Cannabis Now, uh, we wrote a piece called uh, Cannabis and COVID-19. And we did a little uh, research on it. And what we uh, concluded is that because of the anti-inflammatory effect, uh, it may be helpful in preventing you from getting um, uh, COVID-19, and it may be useful in making the symptoms uh, less severe. We also, though, felt that smoking cannabis was not a good idea uh, because it causes a greater uh, sputum production and greater inflammation in the lungs, therefore making the environment uh, more hospitable uh, for uh, the, uh, the virus. So we would say don't smoke it, uh, but use uh, a, uh, a tincture or an edible, uh, particularly if you're getting therapeutic uh, relief from it. Now, I do know that I was contacted by a research outfit that wanted to look into this, but I don't know of any research that's been uh, completed uh, on the use of uh, cannabis uh, in conjunction with COVID. But if you don't smoke it, it looks like it may have some uh, potential benefit. 
as we know, a very powerful uh, anti-inflammatory dexamethasone uh, was given to the president, and it, one of its side effects uh, is it can cause confusion. It's a little hard to tell the difference between his normal confused state and whether or not the dexamethadone uh, exacerbated that. But cannabis does not cause that kind of confusion and is an anti-inflammatory, not as powerful as dexamethasone, but it may still have uh, some beneficial uh, aspects to it. Great. Doctor, Hello, I, I think you're muted. Um, I'm sorry. In yeah. Massachusetts, where I am, it first part was that medical cannabis only was allowed as essential, not the adult use. They had closed down all the adult use stores, and we actually saw an increase in certifications because what had happened was many patients had let their cards not be renewed because of the adult stores being open. And what I found really fascinating was the liquor stores didn't close. Liquor stores have stayed open. And I really believe the reason is that if the liquor stores had shut down, we would have had the hospitals full of people going through withdrawal and seizures from alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction. And that's not what happens to patients or people that use cannabis. You're not addicted. Addiction of its own is an illness. So what we found is that they did allow also uh, authorizations that doctors applied for a special exemption through the Cannabis Control Commission. We were allowed to conduct telemedicine. So we've been doing telehealth and telemedicine to do our certifications. And as far as research studies, um, the cytokine storm has been able to be decreased by CBD has shown those effects. And that is a huge impact because at the end of the day, it's all about inflammation. You know, everything is itis, pneumonitis, gastritis, arthritis, bursitis, it's an itis. And by bringing down the inflammation, that's how you're able to protect people. And what I found in my experiences, my, most of my patients actually um, do smoke and they do inhale. And um, again, depending on knowing the source of your medicine and knowing that it's been tested and chemical free, those are the factors that make a difference. And if anybody ever has a concern, I tell them get a peak flow meter, look at it before and after. And if there's a concern and um, not wood, I have not lost one patient uh, to COVID. I've had patients that have had COVID and they will tell me, Dr. Matt, I really believe the cannabis is what protected me and my symptoms were minimal and I was able to get through it much quicker. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it really is incredible. In Colorado, we actually decided we weren't going to make cannabis essential and then we had thousands and thousands of people down the block. And so basically the governor within 18 hours repealed his, um, you know, his saying that it wasn't going to be essential and made it essential because he realized the demand was so high. And I think this is a time where we have to do a lot of damage control with uh, people, you know, especially the fear factor, you know, all of that stuff that's going on. And so it's really a beautiful thing to see how this is is coming up and what it really comes down to also is truth because you can't hide truth it's always going to come out and so all the people who really have fought for this and know that they've been living their truth it's kind of time for cannabis to live its truth so that's it's a beautiful thing 
there's more to come. It actually is a solution for so many different things. And I just want to touch upon cancer. This is something that I feel adamant about. I mean, I cannot stress the fact that if you're willing to do chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, steroids, and whack parts of the body often, why not incorporate cannabis? And this is where I say, I really believe when we hear that word cancer, cannabis must be, must be an integral part of this treatment because we know the appetite, the nausea, all the things. And why not give people a bit of quality of life, not only for the person that's dying, but also the family members that are around them. I really feel that's how important it is uh, to die with dignity. You know, me let me, can I, I want to uh, talk about cancer and tell you a case. And, and also, uh, you know, what Dr. Uma said about the family, I've noticed with Alzheimer's disease, and it does slow the progress of that, that probably helps the family more than the patient because it helps the patient deal with the sundowner and the anxiety. And in fact, there was somebody uh, in my family who was in a facility and I was prescribing Marinol for them because they were in a facility. And when their prescription ran out, they called me up and said, hey, hey, you know, this person is hard to deal with because of her anxiety. Please send us another prescription, which I did. Uh, the uh, other thing is that, uh, so I'm, I'm at a party and this young man who's in his late 20s comes up to me and says, I want to, what do you know about cannabis and cancer? I said, well, not a heck of a lot. He, he said, well, my stepfather had uh, cancer of the throat uh, and metastasized to the regional lymph nodes and metastasized to rib and to the liver. And they're going to treat him for palliation now, not for cure. And, uh, you know, we don't have anything to lose. What do you, so I told him, you know, about uh, the sort of the Rick Simpson oil thing. And I didn't think anything about it. And about three months later, I get a call from him and he said, um, I just want to tell you, I made the Rick Simpson oil. I gave it to my stepfather, and according to the doctor, his cancer is gone. Yeah. And I, uh, you, you know, it's just amazing. And the reason that cannabis works, there are three reasons. One is that it interferes with uh, metastasis in the ID1 gene and inhibits the ID1 gene. Mm -hmm. It inhibits the formation of new blood vessels, uh, angiogenesis, and it promotes apoptosis, which is uh, a fancy word for programmed cell death. And there was a, a biochemist who had uh, cancer who postulates that this apoptosis, this cell death, comes about because there is a phospholipid called ceramide, uh, which is in higher concentration in abnormal uh, cells, including cancer cells, and that when you take cannabis, it increases the amount of ceramide in the cell and kills the cell. In other words, as Dr. Uh, uh, Uma said, chemotherapy and radiation uh, and other uh, treatments have uh, very uh, un uh, palatable side effects. Whereas with cannabis, okay, you might get a little high, you might have a little uh, uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, but the side effects compared to these other uh, interventions is minimal. Uh, and uh, as Dr. Donald Abrams, who's an oncologist at UCF, uh, UCSF, says, there's more than enough basic science and anecdotal uh, stu basic science studies and anecdotal reports to justify doing double-blind studies, which, again, as Dr. Uma mentioned, we're not doing in this country, and we need to be doing them. Wow, that's really incredible. 
I actually uh, took care of my 14-year-old brother while he was sick with cancer. He was uh, diagnosed, it was actually testicular, but it was a type of cancer called cardiocarcinoma, which is very, the very beginning cells of life, and my brother was 14, so as those cells were reproducing, you know, I would put, stick cannabis, I would juice for him, and I would stick cannabis inside of his stuff, really against my family's will. I come from a very um, strong Christian family who, with the, at that time, 10 years ago, thought cannabis was really bad. And I was also using it to really deal with the trauma of this child being so sick. And I could not believe the quality of life that my brother had in his last moments um, because of cannabis. I mean, it was almost like just completely different days. He could walk, he could talk better. Whereas if he didn't have it, I mean, he would sleep trying to sit up with pillows. I mean, he just, he was never comfortable. So I know firsthand that it truly works. And even like you guys said, giving that last little bit of quality of life, which is so important. Let's let's talk a little bit about Christianity. Uh, the Coptic Church uh, has uh, postulated, and you can check it out online, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth uh, used cannabis uh, as one of his emollients. And it certainly makes sense. If you take a look at leprosy, that it could deal with the uh, skin lesions related to that. He uh, also uh, dealt with the person that had seizure disorders, and that responds to cannabis. Uh, so the possibility is uh, that cannabis uh, was a part of uh, what uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, was using. Uh, so I think that the uh, Christians have uh, a reason, more reason to use cannabis than uh, us uh, non-Christians. Uh, uh, and and I, I don't know how your family feels about this now, but I think they might want to take a look uh, at the history of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, anyway. You know, it's funny because I called a friend of mine named Craig Black and I said, listen, Craig, can you tell me if my brother is going to die? He was an ER doctor at Holy Cross Medical in uh, South Florida. And he told me, I, I told him everything was happening. And he said, Chloe, you give him cannabis. And I said, but he's only 14. It's the first thing I said to him. And he goes, trust me, give it to him. And so that's kind of when my relationship with the plant really changed. And um, I think that that's wonderful. And, and on that topic, you know, where people feel guilt or, you know, the Christian thing, God wouldn't want you high or those type of things. Um, I think it's so important for people like us three who are educators in this space and really um, to, we're meant to get this information out there to people so they would know. Um, I remember one of the ladies that was my mom's very best friend from church, she messaged me and said, you know, Chloe, I have horrible menstrual cycles and I've really prayed about it and God told me it's okay to use it. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that they're coming around and even my family now has a very different outlook on the plant than they did before as all of this information has been made available. Right. Uh, you know, it's really a shame uh, that we have been bamboozled uh, by a hundred years of propaganda. Uh, and, uh, you know, I go back to Dr. Woodward and his testimony for the AMA against the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, mm -hmm. and in which he said the AMA knows of no dangers from the medical use of cannabis. And that was at a time when in the 1920s, American physicians were writing 3 million prescriptions a year that contained cannabis, and there were over 25 patent medicines on the market that contained cannabis. And 
a lot of people uh, think uh, they you know work maybe people think about conspiracies too much but that this was uh, the marijuana tax act had nothing to do with cannabis and everything to do with hemp and that it was a concern on the part of the petrochemical industry particularly DuPont uh, about uh, Ford's uh, hemp mobile a car that skin was um, had an acrylic embedded with hemp the upholstery was made from hemp and it ran on hemp ethanol so the oil companies may have had a hand uh, in the Marijuana Tax Act. Uh, Anslinger gets way more credit than he deserves. He was just a bureaucratic opportunist, and uh, I facetiously say he was the greatest bureaucrat of all time because he created a problem where none existed and was able to increase the size of his bureaucracy because of his propaganda. Mm -hmm. um, Emmanuel, can you, um, yeah, perfect. Okay, so I want to uh, I want to go into the educational part a little bit with you too. Um, you know, I want to discuss why educating doctors is so important. Um, we've discussed, uh, Dr. Bierman, um, you know, the, the uh, punishment that doctors can receive from the medical board for recommending cannabis. And uh, you just mentioned a nine-year-old, you know, story of a nine-year-old kid. Um, you know, why is it important for us to start educating doctors and really opening up this space to allow them to be able to start recommending cannabis and not pharmaceutical drug prescriptions that cause addiction? Well, it's important for one thing, uh, because uh, the having to do battle with the medical board as I did and won uh, is expensive. Uh, the medical board didn't say, oh, here's the money you had to pay your attorney uh, in order to protect patient privacy. Uh, the patient said they didn't want to release their records and uh, the appellate court said that the medical board didn't understand Prop 215. They didn't understand their own enabling legislation. Uh, they didn't understand the letter of recommendation that I wrote. And they didn't understand the, the constitution of the state of California. And yet nothing adverse happened to the medical board. So I uh, am very empathetic with doctors about their reluctance to get into this. Now, there was a case in the Ninth Circuit, uh, Conan versus Walter, which said that doctors don't check their First Amendment rights at the door when they get their MD degree. And that if a patient asks you what you think about cannabis, you can tell them what you think about it, whether it's good, bad, or uh, indifferent. So the endocannabinoid system is the largest neurotransmitter system in the human body. Why aren't we educating doctors about that and of course the other thing is is that we got along perfectly well without manufactured pharmaceuticals until about 1896 or 1897 when aspirin and heroin came along and Bayer uh, put them on the market uh, so we ought to take a look at plant-based medicine. Uh, naturopaths, uh, you know, sometimes are considered to be people who quite weren't smart enough to get into medical school. They're pretty damn smart. Uh, and, uh, you know, what uh, Hippocrates uh, said is medicine is food and food is medicine. And we need to uh, uh, go back to that. And, of course, the other thing is, as a physician, a patient comes in and tells you, Doc, this plant makes me feel better. And if you tell them, that's terrible, 
stop taking it. I never want to see you again. Well, you, you've lost a patient uh, and uh, you've lost an educational opportunity rather than as Dr. Uma and I say, well, tell me more. Uh, how much are you taking? Uh, how much better do you feel? Uh, that is solidifying the doctor-patient relationship and that patient is going to pay attention to other advice that you uh, that you give them. And they're probably going to give some word of mouth a uh, advertising for you. So I can't think of reason one why the medical schools shouldn't uh, talk about the endocannabinoid system and shouldn't talk about uh, plant-based medicine and, frankly, shouldn't talk more about uh, Marinol and Dronabinol, which are synthetic uh, THC. I mean, they've been approved by uh, the Food and Drug Administration. So what are they afraid of? Right. Dr. Uma, I know you have... Are do not prescribe pharmaceuticals because you feel so strongly about this. So, to hear, I I've not had to. You know, this is where people say, Doctor, I I said, listen, when I have another option, why can't I use that? I am a licensed physician, and when I first started to write recommendations in July of 2012 in the state of Washington, I did it because I still feel the sadness that I did not give this plant to my mother. And she died of an illness known as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a fancy term for we don't know what caused your lung disease. And <laughs> I, I, I still remember her when she first, when I first learned about this was because of my mother. And um, she's saying they're using ganja and it was, a TV show about how it was being used in Israel for COPD, asthma, lung cancer, and PTSD. This is what they knew then. And I still remember the knock on my door saying, what? You know, that question and the aha moment. And you find out the history that asthma cigarettes was what they had. And what was in those asthma cigarettes back then was cannabis. I'm originally from India. William O'Shaughnessy first learned about this sacred plant from my country. He learned about it in Calcutta. He saw the Ayurvedic doctors use this medicine for things like tuberculosis and so many different ailments and brought that knowledge to Europe and here. And so my mission is to change the stigma regarding cannabis and for the world to know about the endocannabinoid system, and I do it through education. And that's why I am so passionate about us understanding this and every healthcare provider must, must know about it. And I really think it should be mandated in the states, at least where we have a medical cannabis program. And that's the word we should be using, cannabis and not marijuana. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Uma, you just wrote a book called uh, The Exit Drug. As well, we're, we're getting it out. It's called Cannabis, The Exit Drug. And I call cannabis the exit drug because I have shown that we can help people exit. And it's an exit plan that we put together to get off of pharmaceuticals. Narcotics is what I originally started saying in 2012. And now in the last six years, I've added alcohol and nicotine because we're using this 
for an improvement in your quality of life and also the exit part like we said about cancer or death and dying i feel that that should again be that part that should be incorporated in hospice care and senior care for end of life as well right could you imagine how great that would be if everybody at the nursing home could get together and you know, consume cannabis and they all felt better. I mean, it really could. And it's sad that it has such propaganda, as Dr. Bierman says, because it really, I mean, it, it just gives such huge quality of life toward those end years. I love what I do, Chloe, because honestly, when I did family practice, I used to dread when I knew a senior was coming in because I would fear how many pills they were on and how many conditions I would have to write in that assessment plan of my notes. And now I have a joy because it's like, well, we got rid of one more pill and they're peeing and pooping. And you know, that is essentials of life for some of our seniors and, and sexual activity and sleeping and being active. I just want to say uh, how much I respect uh, Dr. Uma and uh, her philosophy and her enthusiasm and her energy. Uh, there was a study in Israel at a residential care facility, uh, the first one in Israel that incorporated cannabis uh, into their uh, uh, treatment uh, protocol. And what they found was is that the, uh, these people in the residential care facility uh, had better appetites, slept better, uh, had less anxiety, less depression, and they use 20% fewer prescription medications. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're we talking about an exit drug before. Uh, I have uh, a patient who is an assistant district attorney who has not had a drink of alcohol in over 20 years, and he attributes that to his use of cannabis. And he's not the only person uh, with alcohol. And I've had people come in and say, I'm an AA, I still am an AA, uh, I know they don't approve of other drugs and I'm using cannabis because it helps me stay away from uh, alcohol. Also, there are at least four states um, which have um, uh, uh, approved cannabis for opiate use disorder. Uh, can I have the picture back on me because I got something I want to show here. Uh, I don't know. I'm looking at Dr. Umo. Anyway, this is an ad for Canadana, which is a cigarette that was available, a cigarette that was available in uh, the 1920s in Australia. Uh, there also was a uh, cigarette from India uh, called uh, Garibaldi, I think, and another one from France called Cigars de Joy. And all of them advertised as being useful to treating COPD and asthma. And when we think about it, cannabis is both a bronchodilator and an anti-inflammatory, just as many prescription uh, uh, drugs are. And, uh, you know, Dr. Uma hit on a point that uh, isn't made often enough, and, and that is that Uh-oh. We can't hear you, Dr. Berman. Yeah, I think we lost your audio. Oh, yeah, that you can, Dr. Uma has shown that you can decrease uh, your reliance on prescription medication. Uh, and that's something that uh, I know I don't talk about enough. It's something that I'm aware of, uh, but uh, I think that it's something that it's important that we're talking about it here. It's really interesting because 
honestly, people come in and they don't think that that's going to happen. And we could show year after year today. I mean, this is what I love about my patients because my philosophy is reach one, teach 10, teach one, reach 10. Because my patients will say to me, Dr. Emma, I was on six pills. I'm down to two pills. And that's only been in three years. And I've been going to a doctor for 20 years and they never had an exit plan for me. There was never a date when we talked about how we were going to lower some of these meds. It was only about, let me renew that prescription for another six months or another year. You know, so doctors also, I feel like we're at a point and right now in Massachusetts, I'm very proud of my colleagues. They've, um, created me as the point of contact for medical cannabis as the expert. So this is a start to help introduce my colleagues to saying, listen, I know you don't have the time. I mean, this wasn't just your colleagues. This was the Massachusetts Medical Society. Yes. And I'm here being a little bit too modest here. You were an official spokesperson for the Massachusetts Medical Society. Thank you, Dr. Berman. Yes, and it's taken me time, and these are my colleagues that I've known for over 22 years, and some of them still don't understand, even though I see some of them as patients and their family members, and I am a true family doctor, and I love that because, you know, we get to see one patient, and the word of mouth gets out in the family because they're feeling good, and they want to know how, and, you know, when you see another family member improving, that lessens your burden as well as a whole entity. True. Yeah. True. Well, we actually have to wrap up. So is there any last minute um, things you guys want to say before uh, we bring on the next panel? Well, I want to encourage uh, uh, the doctors that are out there or the people, the activists that are out there uh, to consider joining the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine. Uh, go check our website. Uh, and also there's a, uh, a, a virtual conference going on called the Whole Plant Expo. Uh, and you might want to check uh, that out. We have a booth in the, the non-profit uh, organization uh, uh, pavilion. Uh, one of the things that I found is that uh, the way to get doctors to appreciate that cannabis is a medicine is to ask your doctor about it. And I've had there there are probably seven hundred doctors in in Santa Barbara County, <coughs> maybe four hundred of them in Southern Santa Barbara County, and I'd say at least a hundred of them. Uh, and of course, a lot of them are not primary care doctors. Have referred one or more patients to them, and it's because they know that I know what I'm talking about and because they want to uh, take care of their patients who are asking about this and, and they know that, hey, here's somebody who uh, is uh, credible and may be able to uh, uh, to help them. So I think that uh, it's important uh, for people to uh, tell their doctors that the cannabis is useful uh, and to ask them for recommendations if they're in a state where uh, they are required. I also would encourage anybody who wants a little bit more information uh, on the history, uh, there is a video called Medicinal Cannabis and Its Impact on Human Health, and that's uh, that's very good. Uh, and also, if for an introduction to some of the science, is I gave a presentation about 10 years years ago at the University of Wisconsin uh, uh, called 
cannabis and cannabinoids in the 21st century, and that's also uh, something where there, there's a lot of good uh, videos out there. Uh, I'm just kind of pushing myself. And lastly, as long as I uh, uh, have the commercial space here, uh, I've written a book called Cannabis Medicine, A Guide to the Practice of Cannabinoid Medicine. And it's something that uh, uh, interested patients should look at, and any uh, healthcare professionals that have a greater interest in this ought to take a look at. Perfect. And we're going to be working with you with the university as well. And so if you want, you can also send me those links and I can post them on our uh, page so everybody can, um, you know, where to buy your book, uh, any talks uh, talks that you would like us to, to put the links out there for you. And that way everyone can start to get to know you as we're going to definitely be seeing you around a lot more. Thank you very much. <laughs> And they can reach me at Uplifting Health and Wellness. And I'm very excited. Dr. Berman and I are going to be uh, speaking at Dr. Raphael Mishulin's 90th birthday. He will be celebrating. And that conference is um, October 26th to the 28th. And we are a part of that. So we're very excited as well. And uh, there'll be more announcements coming from the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine regarding regional coordinators that will be appointed and uh, more education is on your way. <laughs> so I do want to mention that Dr. Uma is one of our regional coordinators and we're very uh, happy about that. The regional coordinators is to give us uh, higher visibility in various areas uh, in the country. Uh, Dr. Bregman uh, is in uh, Colorado and we have uh, other uh, doctors throughout the country and uh, we hope that they will uh, help us educate uh, physicians as well as possibly patients uh, in their area and I want to thank Dr. Uma. Uh, she has been a great uh, educator uh, and really tireless uh, and have an enormous amount of enthusiasm uh, for the plant and just does a fantastic job. Oh, and I want thank you both for being here today. And I look forward to uh, working with you guys more. Thank you, Chloe, for having us here today. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. This has been Leaf Talks. Sports, Meds, and Money. Brought to you by Cloverleaf University. Hosted and produced by Chloe Villano. Associate Producer, Bobby Black. <laughs>